Hey everyone, I welcome you all to another episode of the Cosmic Matrix podcast. Today we your host Bernhard Günther and I have a very special guest today and that is Jerry Marcinski. And Jerry Marcinski is a licensed psychotherapist with over 35 years of experience working with schizophrenic and other psychiatric patients in state hospitals, state prisons and hospital emergency rooms. His formal academic Training compromises uh, BA in psychology from the Temple University, a master's degree in counseling from the University of Georgia, and two-year study of PhD psychology program. So Jerry has worked for many years over his lifetime, like I mentioned, as a psychotherapist in hospitals, in prisons in particular. And his story is very, very interesting because through his own discoveries, and experiences he basically came face to face with what we call i call the topic of all topics and that mental illness is actually not related to any form of uh, brain injury or chemical imbalance but ties into entity interference attachments and the topic of occult forces so welcome to the show jerry well good to be back uh we we did this yesterday, but got knocked out by uh, the spooks. They messed exactly. up uh, Bernard's electronic stuff here. Exactly. Uh, so, I'm, so I'm glad to be I'm glad to be talking to you guys. Some, you know, this is this is a very strange topic. And had it not happened to me, had I not actually experienced it, I I, I still wouldn't believe it. Uh, it's. Uh, it's another world. It's uh, but but it's a world we're in, and it it is impinging on all of us. Uh, it's just mu- much more noticeable with schizophrenics. Um, so you know, wherever you were doing, well, you're you you've been attracted here to listen to this, uh, so you're ready to hear it, and we certainly need your help in getting it out because this is not going to come out through the mainstream media. It's not going to come out through the psychiatric mafia. It's not going to come out through the medical establishment. Uh, It's going to be you guys in the underground that gets this information out and it will resonate with those who have the light to see. Yeah, exactly. uh, Bernard's asked me to uh, start kind of at the beginning and, and um, uh, work my way through. Um, I guess my uh, to start with my background is is I I was raised with a very deep distrust of authority uh, due to a number of things that happened in my childhood and I was programmed that was hardwired into me so as I as I came up through the years I was suspicious of authority and I never fully believed or trusted anything they said. Um, and when I got to uh, undergraduate school at Temple University, I remember reading an assignment that they gave us um, by written by a, a psychologist who said, um, if two psychotics ran into each other and they each had the same delusion, one of them would have to give way. You know, one of them would have to change that delusion. And I thought that quite odd I, you know, at the time, even though I, I never had any experience with a clinical population. And, and that's one thing that I hated about psychology. Undergraduate psychology, they do not give you access to a clinical population. You cannot check out anything they say. They're saying, this is the way it is, believe it. 
you know, mm-hmm. where engineers can go into lab and see this and see, you know, check out what the, what they're saying. The only segment of psychology where you could actually do that was experimental. But all the rest of it, you had to take their word for it. And that was very hard for me since, you know, I didn't, I didn't trust authority in the first place. So when I ran into something odd like that where a psychologist is saying, hey, two crazy guys with the same delusion have to get rid of one of them, um, that stuck in my memory. And it was probably 20 years later where I got a chance to check that out. I was working at the largest state hospital in the world at that time. It was Central State Hospital. I think they had 13,000 patients at the time. Uh, It was the size of a a small city. There were 200 buildings, and it sprawled over 2,000 acres. Um, There was every mental illness known to man in that place, and for me, it was like a candy store of mental illness. But I ran into one patient one one morning um, in the psychiatric unit I was working, and he was a new guy. And uh, I came up onto the second floor, and, and here's this guy mumbling to himself. And uh, I kind of, you know, crept up behind him and, and was listening to, to what he was saying. And it, it sounded just like, you know, the, he was talking in coherent sentence. It sounded just like he was talking to somebody over the telephone, and I couldn't hear the, the second half of the conversation. Um, but he was, he was, you know, what crazy as a bed bug. And... Uh, so he turned around and he saw me and it, it kind of startled him a little bit. And I introduced myself and I said, uh, you're new to the unit, aren't you? And he, he goes, yeah. And I said, uh, what's your name? And he said, Jesus Christ. And I looked at him and I went, oh, okay. And I looked him in the eye and said, no, <laughs> you're not Jesus Christ because I am. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, what's he going to do? You know, is that is what that professor told me going to pan out? You know, and I'm, I'm like the edge of my seat waiting for a response from him. And he looked a little confused and he, you know, he's like looking at me and finally kind of goes, okay, we can both be Jesus Christ. <laughs> and, he, and he walks off and I'm like, okay, you know, that's one. How many other lies did they tell me uh, in, in undergraduate psychology? <clears throat> um there was another one. Uh, so, so here, here is the foundations of what they're teaching me in undergraduate psychology starting to be eroded. And the other one that they uh, told me was that schizophrenics were far too disorganized to do any advanced planning. And uh, while at the state hospital, I got a call from a friend of mine who worked in another psychiatric unit. And he said, uh, Hey, uh, Jerry, you need to get over here. You need to see this. And uh, I said, what are, you, what, what are you talking about? And he said, get over here quick before it disappears. So jumped in the car, went, ran over to his unit, and we went over to uh, the psychiatrist's office. And uh, I looked in, the, looked in there, and in the middle of his desk was this pile of shit shaped like a pipe. Now, the story behind that, the psychiatrist he fancied they didn't have the highest level confident psychiatrist at the state hospital. This guy walked around, Ed introduced me to him before. He walked around with a pipe like Freud, dressed like Floyd, had a beard like Freud, and and acted like Sigmund Freud. You know, he was, <laughs> he fit right in there with the patients, but he was a psychiatrist. And uh, it was the pipe. 
So he was always smoking that pipe. So this uh, psychotic inmate snuck down three flights of stairs past three attendance stations, somehow broke into his locked office, got up on the middle of his desk, crapped in the middle of his desk, shaped it into a pipe, and then escaped the hospital, and they never caught him. You know, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> they're, they're too disturbed to uh, do any kind of advanced planning, huh? Well, okay, there's another one out the window. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, so, yeah, so, so basically, I mean, like you mentioned at the beginning, basically your distrust for authority worked in your favor, though essentially because you started to question you you saw the inconsistencies and basically like any education when you you know we're being taught what to think not how to think right and especially in the medical industry they already tell you what the issue is and obviously we all know the pharmaceutical industry has an influence in all of that even in education and then to tell people oh, this is what's going on this is what you need to treat them with so it's more, it's literally just more following a script than um, doing true diag diagnosis and finding it or examining and finding out for yourself, right? Well, that that's exactly true. And the, the higher up you get into the educational system, the more tightly they program you. You know, yeah. so I've been through all three levels, and you know, it, it was piled higher and deeper at the end. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they they program you, and it and it didn't. A lot of times it, that didn't work in my favor because I was always in scrapes with authority. <laughs> wherever I worked, wherever I went, I was always in scrapes with authority because I didn't completely believe what they, they said. Um, you know, I, I always kind of had my own way of doing things. Um, not that I, di I didn't get bad evaluation reports. I got good evaluation reports, but I was always always in some kind of trouble with the thought. Yeah. So for, for our listeners, because just it would be maybe interesting to hear, because we all have heard of schizophrenics, but what is the official uh, description or diagnosis of, of a schizophrenic based on official psychology, so to speak? Well, basically what it is is a break from traditional reality. So they say uh, the, these guys uh, have lost touch with reality. Uh, the word schizophrenia in itself um, means split mind, you know, and I think that was uh, coined by, I think it was Emil Kraepelin uh, uh, back in around 1926 or so. He died in 1926. Um, they, they considered him the father of uh, psychiatry. Um, and basically what, what he did was uh, he just figured he'd follow the medical model. Okay, started by Hippocrates some, what, 3,000 years prior, where he found that there were physical causes for uh, illness. And um, it, it just went from there. You know, so the medical profession made a lot of progress based on that, that there, there were a lot of physical causes for illness. But uh, when it came to psychiatry or uh, mental illness, it, it fell apart. Mm -hmm. You know, they could not find a cause. They still don't have a cause. Um, and they can't fathom a mental illness or any illness that doesn't have a non-physical cause or a non-physical treatment. It's just, they can't comprehend that. It's, it's out of their bounds. Um, outside their little box that they've been programmed into, 
And that's exactly what schizophrenia is. It does not have a physical cause. Uh, and although the medications they give these people suppress the symptoms and calm them down, it doesn't cure them. As soon as they go off those meds, right. it's right so the, med, so the meds, they're getting uh, affecting their chemical uh, balance or imbalance, whatever, in their brain. But from what I've heard of what, what you shared before is that there has been no link, proven link, like you just said, between schizophrenia and chemical imbalance in the brain. No. Matter of fact, it's been disproved. Uh, I something's messing with the microphone. So if, the, if I'm getting these messages on my screen that it's switching back and forth between. Interesting. Uh, can you hear me, though? I can hear you. Yeah, but yeah, if I, I, if I go I, out. Yeah. Uh, also, like, yeah, what you, one of my listeners, our listeners know, like what you mentioned at the beginning, this is our second try. We recorded yesterday. And the whole settings were just messed up throughout the um, interview, which has never happened before. So it's interesting, you know, how these interferences sometimes work. So we, we quadruple checked it at the beginning. So hopefully we can go with it. So, um, but you can hear me, right? I, I can hear you, but every once in a while I get a flash saying yeah. that my headphones are out and it switched to the um, manual, the other speakers. Yeah. So if, um, if the audio quality deteriorates or let me know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. We just go with it. Let us not get intimidated or distracted <laughs> okay. by them, so to speak. You know, that's just what happens with the, these kind of topics. But yeah, go on, let's start again. I'll go back to schizophrenia. And because also schizophrenia, based on the official diagnosis, is that these people, these voices, they are hallucinations, right? And based on chemical imbalance. But like just said, not only is there no link between uh, schizophrenia and chemical imbalance, it has actually been disproven. It has been disproven. Um, yeah, that hasn't stopped the chemical uh, drug companies from... Um, saying, oh, it's uh, believed to be linked to, or uh, you know, studies indicate that it is linked to a chemical imbalance of brain. What those drugs that they give schizophrenics actually are are major tranquilizers. Yeah. You know, so they calm them down because the voices infuriate them. The voices stir them up. So, and they're basically treating the symptoms. They do not have a cure. Yeah. And uh, they've been looking for one for a long, long time. Um, you know, and you know that started with Kraplin, and then you had uh, Eugene Bueller. Um, so he he started the uh, you know the book of psychiatric diagnoses. That's a DSM, and and that is an entire work of fiction. All these psychiatric diagnose, diagnoses that they give these people were completely made up. Mm. You know, there is no lab test. There is no physical test. There is no electronic test. There is nothing to substantiate any of those diagnoses. What the psychiatrists do is they get together in a big group and they go, okay, uh, you know, I've, I've found a new uh, mental illness. Uh, this one is, uh, and this is a real one. They call it the Southern Bell Syndrome. They had that down there for a while. It was listed in their manual. You know, how that, it's like Rhett Butler and Gone with the Wind and, and uh, uh, you know, the, the female there, the, the bell. You know, it's that syndrome. They, they considered that a mental illness. They also considered uh, homosexuality a mental illness and put that in their DSM-3. So they started off with, what, 70-something you know, 
diagnoses and then every year they would add more to them and more to them and it would be this disorder and that disorder and it just kept growing and growing and growing and until where where did it end up somewhere around 300 or something like that and who knows where they're going to stop yeah and then then, the drug companies come up behind there and go oh yeah we got a treatment for this try this toxic medicine yeah and also like what you um you mentioned you talked about before like what you just said, the whole just physical approach to mental illness, right? Like that there's something wrong in the brain and whatnot. And back in the old days with the straight jacket, trying to, you know, contain people or electric shocks. And now it has moved to pharmaceutical, the pharmaceutical industry and, and drugs and all of that. And, you know, completely denying the metaphysical aspect of, of mental illness, so to speak. Or if, if, is there even such a thing as mental illness to begin with? Right. Well, you know, that's a good question. Uh, but yeah, yeah they are, they, they've been stuck on the physical cause since Hippocrates. You know, they started uh, drilling holes in, in people's head back in ancient Egypt. So the uh, papyruses wrote of people with schizophrenia back then. And they would drill a hole in their head. And in some cases, that worked if they had pressure on the brain. But in most cases, it just left them with a headache. Yeah. And they picked that back up in medieval times and, and started drilling holes in their heads again. Uh, and then in the 1800s, they drilled holes in the head and they poured distilled alcohol in there to, to you know, poison the schizophrenia germ or try to kill it. Um, so here they were, their physical treatments again, doing, you know, severe damage to these guys. And... Uh, the only ones who, what they were tr- trying to do is both treat it and somehow get these populations under control because they, they posed a big problem. Um, some of these guys were, you know, one of them, I remember reading an account at Central State Hospital with uh, one of the first psychologists to work there. This big guy they brought in, they chained him to the, the walls in the basement because they didn't have any other way to control him. And they become supernaturally strong when they're infuriated. Mm. This guy was ripping out the fi- foundation blocks uh-huh. and, and uh, working on collapsing that wall. Yeah. And I have some stories that are just horrendous of, from, of prisoners um, that did, became supernaturally strong. I mean, yeah. one skinny 100-pound schizophrenic would bounce three guards around the inside of the cell like popcorn. So the French were the first ones to do anything to really control these guys. They came up with the straitjacket, and that was about 1790. After that, uh, around 1940s, they started whirling them around in, in chairs. Um, they called it the whirling chair, uh, and it was used in um, psychiatric institutions. It made them nauseous and sick. They got out of the chair, threw up all over themselves, uh, made a mess, and they found it easier to start giving them emetics, uh, drugs that made them sick, and uh, hot baths. They they get hot and cold baths, and then they started spraying them with a fire hose, and then they suspended them from uh, the walls. Uh, I mean, all kinds of crazy treatments. Yeah, basic treatments that actually, by today's, I mean, there's you know, from a somatic psychotherapeutic uh, perspective, actually installs more trauma. <laughs> It makes things worse, right? doesn't heal anything. Well, in the long run, it made things worse. Um, temporarily, they were sick. So a lot of these treatments made them sick, so they didn't cause any problems. Right. You know, that's the emetics and that kind of stuff. And then they uh, came up with the, one of the weirdest ones was uh, 
they found that um, malaria would kill the syphilis germ. So they would inject patients with malaria and that would, the fever went up, that would fry the syphilis germ. So then they started doing that with schizophrenics. They'd inject them with, you know, syphilis mm. and see if they could fry out wow. the schizophrenic germ like they fried out the syphilitic germ. Um, no effect. It, it, either it, it, it didn't exist or it wasn't home. And then they started with the electroshock therapy where they'd run 450 volts through through the brain of these guys. They were, you know, I watched one, the paddles were about this big. They'd put gel on them, and I'd ask the psychiatrist, why do you put gel? Well, if we didn't put gel, it would burn the sides of their head. We have to put the gel. And uh, they'd send this, these people into convulsions, and their hearts would stop. They'd turn tyanotic, and then they'd have to give them a, a friggin', I mean, it, no. You know, so nowadays, so, so. so nowadays, it all has moved into basically, you know, uh, pharmaceuticals and chemically numbing and shutting them down as as quote unquote treatment. Yeah, right. they're still given shock treatments, but they're not as violent as the ones that I I witnessed at uh, Central State Hospital. But mm -hmm. they're still looking for a physical cause, you know, and and they go, oh, within the next ten years we'll have it, or uh, uh, we think it's uh, genetic, you know, but they haven't found anything there there they blamed it on the mothers for a while oh, the mothers did something while they were pregnant and and that causes schizophrenia and and now it uh, runs in generations and uh, you know yeah. any physical cause they could think of but they're barking up the wrong tree because it's not caused by a physical source right. and it's not going to be treated by a physical source so that's so let's take that as a segue to go to you know your own experiences with working with schizophrenics and how you found out also how they were responding to um, to the pharmaceuticals to the drugs were they you know did they kept themselves on it were they getting themselves off and you know what started to happen when you started to interacting you know uh, with with your patient with the schizophrenics and actually listen to their stories or these voices what they had to say to them well it started back in the uh, central state hospital days where i worked at this massive hospital for seven years and uh you know when i got there i saw that schizophrenics were doing some pretty strange things um you know, i kind of told you this story yesterday but the, the uh, psychotic guy who cut off his penis and i asked my friend who worked in that psychiatric unit to go talk to him, ask him why he did that. And he told them that he didn't need it anymore. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. <laughs> and it, it was stuff like that all the time. They, they were constantly making suicide attempts. Um, they were constantly hurting themselves, hurting other people, uh, bizarre behavior. And I'm like, why are they doing this? You know, why are they doing this? Which everybody from the outside will see, oh, these are just crazy people, insane people, right? Right. And I started asking, you know, the, the psych staff that I worked with, the psychiatrists, the psych nurses, the orderlies, all of them, you know, um, you know, especially when I had noticed they weren't, they kept going off their medications, you know, because it, it, compared to psychosis, which is absolute hell on earth, I mean, paranoid psychosis, the medications are bad. I mean, the side effects are bad, but they're nowhere near as bad as being floridly psychotic. I mean, it's, it, the comparison would be 
you know, okay, if you had a choice between a case of the flu or the bubonic plague, you know, most rational people would choose the flu, not schizophrenics. They went for the bubonic plague all the time. They would consistently go off their medications eventually. So that's interesting. Although it made, it seemed to make them feel better, they themselves got themselves off. They themselves uh, the cut themselves off, and they did mm -hmm. it consistently. Mm -hmm. You know, you could almost expect that to happen. Um, you know, I'm jumping several years ahead of the thing. Um, you know, I don't know if we need to go back. Uh, I guess we do a little bit. Um, one thing I noticed uh, when I was working with psychiatry with these patients was that they would use those antipsychotic medications like you'd use a shotgun. You know, if one didn't work, they'd try another one. Mm. And if that didn't work, they'd try another one. And they'd bring the patient in. Well, how are you doing with your meds today? Well, I'm doing awful. Well, let's try this one until they settled on one that kind of worked best, but they all had bad side effects. Um, and, you know, I'd asked the psychiatrist, I said, uh, okay, you, you're telling me that this schizophrenia is due to a chemical brain imbalance. What, what do you have to measure that imbalance with? I mean, I don't ever see you giving lab tests. I don't see you giving any kind of tests there. You don't, you have nothing that I see that you, you measure whatever this imbalance is before you give them these medications. How do you know what that imbalance is and, and how bad the imbalance is and, and what is, what imbalance is and, they go, oh, oh, the, the drug companies did all the work. You know, they, they're the ones who tell us. I mean, we were taught in, in medical school that it's due to a chemical imbalance. They weren't thinking for themselves. They were, they were kind of running this program that the drug companies and, and the medical institutions put in their head, and they weren't asking any questions. You know. So, uh, you know, I, I went and, and did some research in the library and uh, found out, you know, where these these chemicals originated from, these drugs that they were using. And uh, as I told you yesterday, they were found in dye labs in Europe, you know, where they would dye clothes by accident. So here's the uh, pharmaceutical industry telling us, uh, hey, well, uh, listen, uh, we spend billions of dollars on research for these drugs, and uh, we have to recuperate our costs. Is why we have to charge you guys so much. You know, they did no research. It was discovered by accident in a dye lab based on the effects it had on, on the workers that were in there. And then uh, one of the pharmacists uh, in France, I believe it was again, kind of synthesized that component out and they wouldn't let them administer it in, in Europe because the uh, Freudians were, were saying, oh, no, psychoanalysis is a treatment. That's, you know, we are the only ones that have the key that can get in there to understand what's really going on with these people. And uh, we don't want you guys messing around with any drugs that might interfere with uh, our theories here. So he went to the U.S. and, and convinced a couple of psych hospitals over here to start using um, those antipsychotic drugs, which again was a major tranquilizer, and they had remarkable results. You know, they didn't have to make 
these patients sick now to, to wear them out. They didn't have to keep shocking their brains and killing, you know, stunning them for weeks to kind of calm them down and make them manageable. They could just give them these drugs and it was like a miracle. You know, it didn't cure anything, but it made the management of these big out of control psychiatric populations uh, much easier. Uh, I talked to some of the uh, old time uh, orderlies or attendants at the state hospital when I was there and they used to have horrendous battles with psychotic patients and both sides would get hurt. You know, the attendants would get hurt and the psychotics would get hurt until they could stuff them into a straitjacket. Now they just give them these meds and it, it just kind of knocks them out and they're just kind of like doped up and dazed and uh, uh, it, it was a, it was like a miracle. Right. So they, they found something effective that had an impact on this disorder but it didn't cure. It didn't yeah. cure it. As soon as they went off it. it and then it, they went off it themselves. That's very they went fascinating. Off it yeah. So, uh, you know, I couldn't fathom that. Um, and I started asking them why. You know, I asked both the staff and I asked the inmates why. And I remember one psych nurse, uh, after asking her, she goes, well, that's just a symptom of the illness. You know, that's just what they do. That That's part of being schizophrenic. They go off their meds. That's just one of the symptoms everybody knows they do this um and and uh you know the only reasonable explanation i got was uh, both from the patient and the staff where they didn't like the side effects okay and the side effects are bad i mean they're you know numb you out dry mouth sexual dysfunction uh shaking uh you feel sort gorked out um blurred vision uh i mean there's a whole bunch of nasty side effects none of them as bad as being floridly psychotic yeah which okay then you know if, you, if you're given the choice between something bad and something horrible and most rational people are going to pick the thing that's bad and try to steer away from the horrible even even you know worms and roaches and and insects will avoid you know punishing stimuli something something bad they will they will i mean it, it's just built into the the nervous system of of creatures on this planet you, you don't go jumping into the fire you know, right. you, you know and here's these guys jumping into the fire and it's like why why the hell are they doing that and so i'd pull them in and i'd say well okay why are you doing this well i didn't like the side effects of the drugs well you know did you like being psychotic any better well you know, and um, I said, well, why, you know, why'd you stop taking your drugs? Uh, the voices told me that uh, the psychiatry, psychiatrist was poisoning me. And, and they, they said that these were the side effects of being poisoned. And I said, well, you've been on those meds for six months now and you're still alive. You know, uh, how, why are you buying into that? Oh, oh, oh yeah, I guess I am. You know, it's, it's like, what is going on with these people? So, you know, maybe I was going, maybe they don't understand. And I came up with these two lists, you know. Um, one was when, when a patient went off their meds, I, would, I was curious about it. So I'd give them a blank piece of paper and I'd say, write down on this piece of paper all the side effects you had while you were on that med because not all of them had the same side effects. So after they were done that, I'd take that back and I'd give them 
a listing, two-page listing checklist of all the symptoms, all the horrible symptoms of paranoid psychotic, you know, uh, paranoid schizophrenia. And I said, uh, check all of these symptoms that you've had while you were off the drugs. And bam, 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 you know, bunches of them over those two pages. And then I'd hand them back and I said, which is worse? And they go, well, yeah, well, the psychosis is worse. Well, then why did you go off your meds? Well, I don't know. They didn't know. That's fascinating. They didn't so, know. And then also just implied the voices told them, right? Well, not all patients said that. There, there, right. were, there, was, there was one or two that said that. And that triggered me to, you know, because the assault rate upon psychiatrists at the state hospital and in general, I mean, is, is very high. I mean, I have the statistics here. Um, what is it? Uh, uh, 40% of psychiatrists sometime over their career are assaulted by their patients. Now, this didn't happen to psychologists, didn't happen to counselors, didn't happen to psych nurses. It, it didn't happen to virtually anybody, any other staff except psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. they, they were assaulted at a much higher rate than anybody else. Um, the, only, uh, the only staff members who were assaulted at a slightly higher rate were the attendants who were with these psychotic patients 24 hours a day around the clock. So I'm like going, what the hell are psychiatrists doing to these guys that set them off within the 20 minutes that they spend with them a month? I mean, I, I couldn't comprehend that. It made no sense to me. Why are they being assaulted at such a high rate when they spend so little time with these people? It, it, it just boggled my mind. Um, so it, it was you know, several years later where one patient said, well, the voices are telling me the psychiatrists are poisoning me. And then I made click. I made the link. Okay. The voices are telling them this. And then I started asking about that. And yeah, several of them said the same thing, but you had to ask them. So that's when he actually inquired into the really taking, maybe giving more importance to what these voices are telling them, because most people in that industry would just, you know, these are just hallucinations anyway. We need to ignore them. Don't engage with the patient. Don't encourage them. Don't make them think that you believe what they say, because it's just a hallucination. It's just a, it's a mental illness. You know, we don't want to encourage them. And then you start actually that's a shift, so to speak. You started actually listening to what are these voices actually telling them? Well, I was doing that long before I got to the medicine mm -hmm. point, uh, but that's exactly right. You know, psychiatry, the medical establishment, the psychiatric mafia and the medical mafia just come out and went out of thin air. We're the authorities. We hereby declare that the voices are hallucinations. Yeah. You know, based on what? Well, because we said so. That's it. You know, we said so, that's the way it is. That's what we were taught in medical school. That's what all the uh, academics think. That's what all the psychiatrists, so that's the way it is. That's, that's reality. I didn't trust those guys like I didn't trust anybody else. Uh, and I started watching uh, when I first got to the state hospital, uh, and it, something odd started happening almost right off the bat. Um, schizophrenic patients would not go to the ice cream socials that the chaplain was holding, even though they had free ice cream and cake, and that was uh, a rarity at the state hospital. All the other patients ran down there, and time after time, a schizophrenic patients would stay on the ward, and dingy ward, they wouldn't get off. 
and uh, you know, I started asking why why are you staying on this dingy ward? Why aren't you down there with the other guys having ice cream and cake and and you know socializing? Oh, uh, well, I don't believe in God, and I don't like preachers, and uh, you know, God doesn't exist, and uh, I don't I don't like church. I never have liked church. Um, and, and you know it's like uh, but then you look at their bedside and here's these horror stories and murder mysteries and and these bad things um some of them started talking about uh what happened when they tried to read the bible and the voices didn't like it now I, at that point i wasn't sure what the voices were uh and why a hallucination would not like the bible or any religious kind of experience i mean that it wouldn't make sense for a hallucination to object to any kind of religion or, you know, you wouldn't expect that to happen. I mean, hallucinations, a hallucination's not real. shouldn't be running any patterns. Especially not consistently for every schizophrenic you in, in that right. instance. And, and, and this was consistent. Yeah. Uh, so I started asking them new, new ones that came in. So I, I always had a flow of schizophrenics that I could question. And I'd ask, what happens when you read the Bible? the voices get louder. They don't like it. And so well, what do they tell you? And, and there were two of them over the years. And this was like maybe 20 years apart that said, uh, the voices told me when I tried to read the Bible that uh, Jesus couldn't even save himself. What makes you think he's going to save you? Those were the exact same words, 20 years apart with two mm. different patients. So what I found is when they tried to read the Bible, the voices got louder. You know, I'm like, why would that happen? Um, and they would they would block them out, and they couldn't concentrate, and they and they couldn't remember what they read. But yet they're they're glued to these horror stories, these horror books. So I found that curious. So uh, what I did is I got uh, uh, one of those horror books, and I wrote down a paragraph from the horror book, and I wrote down a, a, a about the same size thing from the Bible, and I gave them to them, let them read it once, and then gave them a blank piece of paper and said, write down everything you remember about what you just read. And then I'd give them the, the horror movie paragraph and, and, and okay, write down everything you, you, you can remember about what you They remembered almost twice as much information about the horror story than they did about what was in the Bible, and that was consistent. I'm like, why would that happen? Yeah. So then I started questioning them about uh, – uh, going to church. I mean, because not all of them were atheists. Some of them believed in God and they prayed and the voices got louder a lot of times when they prayed. Um, uh, it seemed like it aggravated the voices. And I'm like, why Why would prayer aggravate voices? Uh, why, why would that happen? And it happened consistently. So here's these patterns starting to emerge that don't belong in the category of a, a, a random hallucination. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, what's, what's going on here? I mean, these, these are repeatable patterns that these things are running. And then I found out that almost every single one of them said their voices were negative. You know, what they were telling them was horrible. It was bad stuff. Um, and it, it's like, what, what's holding them to that particular pattern? Why, why will not they deviate from that negative crap that they're giving them? Uh, and, you know, these patients at the state hospital, uh, they weren't used to being questioned about their voices. I mean, nobody asked them about their voices. And, you know, when I did, I got into trouble twice. Mm -hmm. um, so the voices didn't like being questioned. And uh, they, would, they would get upset when I asked these patients about their voices. 
Um, but I, I did find that they were consistently negative. You know, they would, it, it was always bad stuff they were telling them. And, um, so it's interesting. So also just to let our listeners know, it's not about uh, Jesus and the Bible and trying to, you know, on a, the, it's not like you were on a missionary. Oh, no. You know, trying to, it was just you found that pattern. You just saw something like literally like objectively something, if you give them something more spiritual, more positive, whatever it may be. In this case, it was just, you know, a Christian church influence. Uh, the voice would get upset. They would reject it, all of that. But they were drawn to more negativity, crude, you know, uh, what mentioned horror stories and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, would literally deny or try to get the patient away from anything that may shine a, a more positive light into, into their lives, basically, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, it happened with all positive material. It happened with self-help material. It happened with, you know, any positive material the voices re would react negatively to. But they didn't react as strongly as they did to the Bible. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't expect that to happen from a hallucination. And you wouldn't expect it to, to them to be consistently negative if it was a hallucination. Um, so that you know that that got my curiosity up. I'm like, what is going on here? Um, and then I started questioning them about uh, past church attendance. Uh, you know, a lot of them avoided church, but of the ones who did, I found that if the voices were weak and they attempted to go to church, the voices would raise hell before they got there. Do everything they could to talk them out of going, but when they went in, the voices disappeared. And I'm like, what's going on there? If the voices were moderately strong, they would do everything they could to stop them from going. When they got in there, they got louder. And they would tell them, uh, you know, the preacher's a fool. This is a bunch of nonsense. Get out of here. Um, you know, you're wasting your time. Um, you know, the preacher's crazy. Listen to this crap he's telling you, uh, that, that kind of stuff. And they get, they get loud enough to blot out whatever the preacher was trying to get across. So they couldn't concentrate on what the, what the preacher was saying. And I went, well, that's odd. And then the third category were those who reported that they tried to go to church and their voices got so strong. And they had such headaches that they had to get up and they had to run out of there. You know, and I actually witnessed that at one point, and I didn't know why that guy did it. But all of a sudden, some guy jumped out of the uh, pews and, and ran, virtually ran down the aisle and, and jumped out of there. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I'm like, what, what, what the devil's going on here? The, the next thing I saw was that the unit I was working in or for was a psychiatric rehabilitation center. It was Yarborough psychiatric rehabilitation center. So um, it, it was funded by the department of vocational rehabilitation. And our job was to get these guys trained with a job and out of the hospital, you know, to reduce the population and, and, and try to get them on their feet again. Um, so we were sending them to vocational classes and, and giving them job skills. And the next thing I noticed was that as they started to succeed, they would sabotage themselves. They'd do something to get in trouble with the, with the vocational teacher and, and 
get suspended or thrown out of class, or they'd be just about ready to graduate and they wouldn't finish the last few assignments. Uh, so, so they were constantly sabotaging themselves. And I could pull them in on, why you do that? Why'd you do that? You know, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't know why I did that. You know, but they would do it. Um, and that ties into the medication, you know. Why are you, if they wouldn't stay off their, on their medication, there's no way they'd be able to function out in society. You know, they had to stay on those medications and they would consistently go off. Um, so the, that comes, so here, here's, here's more patterns coming yeah. out, you know, and, and these were repeatable patterns consistently. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'd question them about it, and uh, yeah, they weren't used to that. Apparently, their voices weren't used to that, and their voices didn't like it. And the first time I got in trouble for that was when one of them went to the psychiatrist and said, uh, you know, he's badgering me about what my voices are saying, uh, you know, and, and, and he's upsetting me. I'm getting upset. And I got pulled in front of the psychiatrist, and he went, uh, the voices are hallucinations. You know, and you're reinforcing them by asking questions about them, and you're making my patients worse and more upset. And you stop right now, or you're going to get it right up. You know. So, so you they, act you were actively discouraged to actually inquire to was, engage personally with the uh, with the patient. You know what what the voice is actually telling you to kind of like, you know, have a deeper inquiry instead of just uh, dismissing it as hallucinations. No, they, they uh, wouldn't listen to what I found. I mean, I tried to talking no no you i am the doctor who's the doctor here me or you yeah you are so it's interesting too like on that you know not to jump ahead but when the patient go went to the to the main doctor and, tell, and complained it's almost the, the voices didn't like you inquiring and then manipulated the patient to kind of put an end to it yes right because that's what it came down to that they that didn't like down. you kind of prying there and yeah. and finding out what you actually then eventually have found out mm -hmm. you know and then also like you know, I remember you talking about last time we spoke with, you know, uh, realizing this reaction to anything spiritual, Christian, religious and whatnot. You started also then experimenting, right, uh, by giving them certain verses or with this rubber band. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. You did. See, so I had to keep below psychiatry's radar while I was working at the state hospital because, you know, I'd, I'd gotten in trouble twice for questioning schizophrenics about what their voices were telling them. and uh, what blew me away was you know the psychiatrists were hypocrites I mean if if a patient told the psychiatrist that he was hearing voices to kill himself you know they put him on suicide watch lock him down and fill him full of drugs I mean it was like somebody poked him in the butt with a hot stick I mean they believed them when they said that because their suicide rate is is you know what five times higher, 10 times higher than the general population. And they didn't want to be gigged with, you know, having a suicide on their watch, but they reacted to the voices telling the patient that and it reacted quickly and dramatically, but they never asked what else are the voices telling them, mm -hmm. you know, past that it was a hallucination. And they even believed that the voice telling them, telling the patient to kill himself was also a hallucination. But it was that hallucination that they acted on. And I'm like, well, why aren't they asking them what else the voices are telling them? Because they believed they were hallucinations and, and uh, that's what they were taught. And, you know, they couldn't, you know, they, 
the other thing is um, that, that their assault rate was pretty high, you know, and they had an unwritten rule at the state hospital that you just don't do anything to upset a psychotic patient that you don't have to absolutely have to after a number of them got, you know, the crap kicked out of them a few times. Uh, and, and questioning the voices did set off some turmoil. Uh, that wasn't a factor when I got to the state prison, however. I mean, a psychotic inmate going to the warden or a guard or anybody and saying, hey, uh, this, this guy in the psych department is asking me questions about my voices and it's upsetting me. That wouldn't even break the ambient noise level in that place. I mean, they just go, get out of here, you know? Yeah. So uh, for years before I, you know, schizophrenic started fully recovering while I was learning about these things, um, I was able to question them pretty freely. And I always had a select group of schizophrenic prisoners I was working with all the time. You know, some came, some went, but there was a select group of, you know, 10, 12, 15. And the deal I had with them is that while I'm working, you know, I'll help you all I can. I know some stuff. Um, but the deal is you're going to have to tell me exactly what your voices are telling you in real time anytime they speak to you with when you're with me. And I also want to know what effect these treatments we're kind of trying to develop have on them you know, when you come back in, after you do this homework, tell me what the result was. Uh, and, you know, it, I was fascinated with it. And I, I would spend, uh, you know, hours with these guys where the rest of the psychs, 20 minutes, they didn't understand what was going on with them. They were crazy. They were never going to get better. There's nothing you could do for them. And boom, they're out of the office. So I first attracted the attention of the chief psychologist when, I was spending hours with these guys when nobody else could stand being around them for 20 minutes. So they're going, well, what's going on in there? Um, and, and since there wasn't any, you know, there wasn't no damage done. And I, I did it. I scheduled them as much as possible when, you know, other psychs weren't visiting my particular unit. Uh, so I got away with it for years, you know, asking them all these questions, testing out all these different things. Um, and one of the first things that came was one inmate who was hearing voices said that when he repeated the 23rd Psalm, his voices reacted like somebody had thrown them onto a hot frying pan. And I'm like, well, okay, I've already seen this stuff with the, at the state hospital. And, you know, so I started handing out copies of the 23rd Psalm. And then I'd ask the, the uh, inmates to come back and tell me what, what reaction their voices had to the 23rd song. It was consistently infuriating to the voices. They hated it. They, they would make them lose the thing. They would make them forget to uh, repeat it. Even if they carried around their pocket, they would distract them and, and they wouldn't repeat it. So it's, it's almost like whatever these voices were, and I wasn't sure what they were at the time at all. They would, they would blot, or blot, blot out the patient's memory that he was supposed to do this when they appeared. So they had to find some way to shut them down, you know, to, to link the, the appearance of the voices with something that would shut them down instead of memory, because they were obviously interfering with the patient's memory. Um, so I read, uh, I ran into a book, 30 Years Among the Dead, 
um, mm -hmm. it was written by a psychiatrist who would use static electricity to drive the voices out of his patients and then his psychic wife would talk them into the light and once that happened they wouldn't come back um, yeah so also just for listeners that book is actually also based on basically earthbound spirit attachments of yes diseased yeah. humans that spirits are, are stuck in the lower astral realm attached to other humans you know and then through her work uh, this couple they were able to guide these diseased spirits back uh, back to through the light basically right to detach yeah, it, them from the human yeah it, it it was you know a, a lot of cases these things you know i didn't know back then but they would react like furious humans mm -hmm. yeah so uh you know, I, I was working with Wilson Van Dusen, then a clinical psychologist who was uh, worked at a state hospital in Mendocino, California, and uh, he had found that there was a correlation between the works of Emanuel Swedenborg, a Christian mystic, and what his voices were telling him. So he was trying to make friends with the voices of his patients, so he could learn as much as he could about them and he was carrying on dialogues with them he was talking to them and uh, after a year or so of doing that he, he went well there's nothing more to learn from them they're they're liars you can't you know they they have a uh, malicious streak when it comes to religious materials he noticed that too he noticed they were constantly negative that they were constantly putting down the patient that uh, you know all, all this negative stuff that I was also seeing and uh, he, I told him, I said, this is a reaction I'm getting to the 23rd Psalm. We were emailing each other back, and, and uh, he sent me the 20, uh, 30 Years Among the Dead, and I read it, and I'm like, okay, what do I have that I can use that would produce a similar effect? And then he started sending me advertisements I told you yesterday for uh, static shock machines, and I'm like, Wilson, I can't bring that in the prison. They catch me shocking prisoners. They're going to fire me right off the bat. I'm always in enough trouble with them as it is. I don't need any more. Uh, so I'm, I racked my brain for like two months about what can I use to create a mimic a shock. And I was standing uh, talking to a secretary one day, and I saw a big rubber band on her desk. And I went, oh, let me see. So I scarfed a rubber band, went back, and uh, the next day with one of my psychotic patients, I said, uh, put this around your wrist, and when, the, uh, when your voices come, pull it back and snap it hard. And, uh, you know, come back tomorrow and let me know what effect that had. And uh, he came back and he said, uh, well, it hurt the voices more than it hurt me. And they shut up for, you know, 30 seconds to a minute or two. And I went, Wow. So I started handing out uh, the rubber bands to other schizophrenic inmates. Um, so they had the 23rd Psalm, the rubber band. Their instruction was to, as soon as you start hearing the voices, read the 23rd Psalm. So I had the 23rd Psalm out there before I ever discovered the rubber band thing. They couldn't remember to re read it. They lost it. So gave them another copy, gave them a rubber band, and said, uh, when the voices appear, snap the rubber band and then read the 23rd Psalm. And that worked. You know, it shut the voices up enough for them to read the 23rd Psalm and the voices reacted to it like somebody was sticking them with a hot needle. Mm -hmm. So they, and that was consistent. They did not like it. And some showed back up in my office and their wrists were red from 
stinging themselves from with the rubber band. They said it hurt the voices more than it hurt them. And a lot of them broke the rubber band and came back for another one. You know? So, uh, you know, I guess somebody spotted one of them that had uh, his wrist was red from snapping the rubber band and told one of the nurses who told one of the chief psychologists and the chief psychologist came down on me and said, you will stop this immediately. You stop handing out the 23rd Psalm and stop handing out rubber bands. You know, so it's here, fascinating and shows you just the medical establishment because it was actually helping the patients, right? Temporarily. Tem I mean, temporarily. I mean, you know, at least, I mean, obviously it didn't resolve anything, but that you were onto something, a pattern, and it helped them to not, you know, to calm down the voice, not calm down the voices, but not get temporarily into the, shut them up, shut them up, you know, but without what, any uh, pharmaceuticals. Right. But, but the big thing it did do that was beneficial, it showed them that there was a way for them to fight back against their voices. Mm. There was a way for them to regain <coughs> just a little bit of control and shut them up. That's what the big thing was. They had something that they could throw at the voices and, and hit them with it and that they know the voices didn't like, you know, and it gave them some, some minor sense of control over what was happening to them. So, because we are getting closer to the end of the first hour. So that was around the time when you realized, also reading the 30 uh, Years Among the Dead, that these voices is definitely not no chemical imbalance, no hallucination, but there's something else, right? Another intelligence, response spirit, entity, being, whatever, there's something else locked in there, attached to them, interfering. So through your own process, working with, the, with your patients and also inquiring what they said, you came to realize that a lot of these, what these voices tell them very negative, negative self-talk and just keeping them in this lower negative frequency. Yes. And they would, the voices would get more upset if there was more spiritual approach, spiritual knowledge, positivity, and all of that. They resist that, you know, uh, uh, even violently, depending on the degree of... of yes, what, consistently what, you know, too. And, and consistently too. So that's very interesting. So, um, I mean, this is probably a good way to finish off the first section is uh, as my inmates I was working with at the prison started improving and their voices started getting less frequent and, and not as loud because of these different exercises we developed to hit, hit the voices back with, um, I started getting complaints from those inmates that they're voices were getting very angry at me. They were getting very upset with what I was doing. And I'm like, well, that's pretty odd for a hallucination. This is getting personal. You know? And I would tell them, well, screw them. You know, tell them to go jump in a lake. And uh, I remember one turning around that he was leaving my office and he, he turned around and he looked at me and he said, you know what you're doing is very dangerous, don't you? And that kind of took me by surprise because I didn't think so. I mean, I, I didn't think these things could come out of their head and get me. Um, I knew that they might be able to convince the, the inmate to attack me because, you know, a lot of them had a violent history, but I didn't feel threatened. I mean, we had, for the most part, we had a pretty good relationship um, where I, I could monitor what the voices were telling them and how bad they were getting. But it was all the time it was like walking on the edge of a razor blade because I, they had to trust me and I had to trust them. And if they tell me that their voices are telling them to go stab this particular guard and I didn't turn that into security and they actually went and did that, 
that was the end of my job. You know, so I had to constantly monitor what was going on with them and their voices and how much control they had over those voices. Because if they told me that and then I went to security and said, well, he said this, they'd lock him down and move him to another unit and, and that would be the end of it. It would spread to every other schizophrenic inmate on the yard that you can't trust anything this guy's saying. You know, so I, 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 it was very touchy. So um, the, the voices started uh, talking back to you to you through the patients? Well, the first time they did that was after I got this series of warnings. Mm -hmm. And then one inmate I'd been working with for over six months, he shows up at my office one day without an appointment. And I had an agreement with them. If you, you know, if something happens, you, you come tap on my window and I'll get you in as soon as I possibly can. Yeah. This guy comes and he uh, knocks on my door and he says, um, the voices want to talk to you. Okay. And I'm like, what? He goes, they want to talk to you. I said, they want to talk to me personally? And he said, yeah, they want to talk to you. That's, I said, that's, and that's, let's get that into that one. That's the story, right? That's uh, a story. Said, exactly. What, you know, that thing comes out of him. And uh, because we're at the end of the first hour, let's. Well, that's just the first part. We can do the second part later. But yeah. I brought him in. And I said, what do they have to say? And this had never happened before. It was always the patient served as the intermediary I, you know i'd say don't tell the voices to jump in a lake and he'd say well they're they're telling me you're an asshole not to thrust anything you say so it, the patient was always into the intermediary it was never a direct dialogue so he came in closed the door sat down and i said well w what do they have to say you know because this was kind of freaking me out and he looks me in the eye and he goes uh this is what they have to say and he said uh These words poured out of its mouth. You have no right to interfere with our way of life. Hmm. And I'm like, interesting. Do 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 do. <laughs> that's that's right. And and uh, he he jumps in. He goes, I didn't say that. That wasn't. Those weren't my words. That was them. That that was them. Talking. It's also it's also interesting. Exactly, especially our way of life. Our way of life. When So that it's plural. It also shows that it's not necessarily an earthbound spirit of like disease human spirit attached, because it really sounds like this is a whole different dimension, reality, a different being entity that has is not is non-human. Right. I mean, <laughs> at this I, point, <laughs> my head just went, boom. You know, mm. and I was like, "What the hell just happened?" <laughs> yeah. So great, Jerry. So let's get into that, uh, into the second hour, into that story, and how you really, literally, came face to face with the topic of all topics: the hyperdimensional control of humanity, entity interferences, occult forces, which also ties into, you know how we are being, all of us are quote-unquote schizophrenic to varying degrees. We can talk about this later as we dealing with thought injections we mistake for our own, right? And believe our own thoughts and how this affects uh, all of us to, you know, all of humanity to varying degrees. And we can talk about the bigger picture and then also definitely talk about what the solutions can be done, right? And the awareness we need and what tools and practical advice you have. I know you have a lot of for that as well, which will be very interesting. Um, so again, for the listeners, the second hour is available for members. Uh, you can sign up if you have not already at veilofreality.com for the second hour and also access to the forum. And Jerry, before we close off the first hour, how can people um, find you? Do you have a website? Anything? Well, we, we got one under uh, development. Uh, in the meantime, we can go through uh, Sherry, who I, I told you about uh, yesterday. 
um, keyholejourney.com mm -hmm. is the website where I have all the videos and articles posted, and it's under the paranormal section. So you go to keyholejourney.com, go to paranormal, and then you'll see articles and videos. I've also got a YouTube website uh, called the, uh, I think it was uh, um, the Presence of Other Worlds, um, or you can just look up my name and it'll, it'll yeah. be there. Well, I link. I will link all of that in the in the info section, so for okay. for listeners to check out. And I've got a Facebook site also. <clears throat> Excellent. Perfect. So thanks, Jerry, for the first hour, and uh, we'll be right back. Okay.